Welcome to the World Architecture Festival podcast. This series features recordings from the annual festival, where architects and commentators discuss the latest challenges and innovations in the industry. Make sure you subscribe to always receive the latest episode and also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at WorldArchFest. Hello, uh, welcome back to uh, the main stage and our final presentation, the keynote presentation for, for today, uh, which is going to be about performative architecture and robotics by uh, Matthias Kohler, who is uh, Professor of Architecture and Digital Fabrication at the ETH, uh, and also co-founder of Gamazio Kohler Architects with Fabazio, sorry, Fabio Gamazio. Now, Matthias is one of a small group of people who are not just waiting for digital technologies to come and uh, sort of improve our lives and change architecture. Uh, but he is one of this small group who are actively engaged in exploring what that change might be, indeed beginning to direct what that change might be, to not just look at the vast range of inchoate possibilities, but to actually look at very specific applications. Uh, and indeed, uh, how he is engaged with uh, uh, Grazia Cola and with his research at the ETH, in making real buildings and real structures. These are no longer just uh, uh, the equivalent of paper architecture or digital architecture. They are becoming um, real, real buildings. And this is happening because of the way uh, digital technologies are transforming uh, the manufacturing process. I, I should confess, I had the privilege of seeing Matthias speak earlier in the year at the launch of the Norman Foster Foundation, where he showed some extraordinary projects, including uh, one which was built entirely by drones. Um, and uh, this is obviously a complete new departure. But I think it's not always about high technology at every level, because there's one uh, project, a vineyard in Switzerland, a, a winery in Switzerland, uh, which is made of simple bricks. It's just that those simple bricks are positioned in such a way that was calculated through digital technologies uh, to optimize uh, the shading on the, on the winery. So the, the, uh, the, 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 the simple brick form, uh, which has been known for thousands of years, is then used in a completely new way, but without actually changing um, the brick at all. Um, they, there are also something which I, I find a rather interesting phrase called clean urban infrastructure. I think that's public lavatories to most of us. Um, and uh, also how robots might be used in architecture. And presumably robots don't need clean urban infrastructure. Um, uh, 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 Matthias is, 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 has also set up an, or, or has worked with the National Centre of Competence in Research and Digital Fabrication Collaboration uh, on, a, on a house, a defab house. And what that does uh, is to go beyond the stage of the bricks and the winery, which is to explore how smart slabs and dynamic casting can contribute to transforming otherwise inert, traditionally inert building parts. Uh, as well as the obvious use of, of digital technologies in electronic goods and IT in a home. So please welcome Matthias Kohler. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, uh, Jeremy. Can you hear me all? The acoustic seems to be a bit challenging in here, but if you, I see some of you nodding, so I, I assume that this is working. Good. Um, so, as Jeremy said, I'm going to talk a bit about a strange relation, relation between machines, humans, designers, and architecture. And uh, I would like to get you a bit into this topic and also share with you why we are actually quite excited about this topic, so that we look at this as an opportunity and not as a threat uh, from a design perspective. But I mean, we all know it. The world is rapidly changing. And every year, we hear more news. We, there are a lot of societal challenges that actually come with the changes of new digital and also robotic technologies. Now, you have certainly heard that also the production technologies are changing. So 3D printing, is in everyone's word, uh, mouth. Uh, then robotic technologies, new, you know, um, cyber physical systems, 
Industry 4.0, etc., etc. So we all heard uh, these stories. We read it in the press daily. But the question that I would like to ask here is, will the way that we actually build change? So the way that we construct buildings. So not on a product scale, not on a consumer uh, object scale, but literally on a building scale. And my answer is quite short. It's yes, the way that we will build will change. Uh, and if you do a quick search uh, on Google, like for example for robotic fabrication in architecture, you will see tons of images of robots building architectural artifacts. Now, this is just a small indication of what's happening right now. So roughly since about 10 years, and I'm going uh, to lead you into this, uh, many architecture faculties all around the globe started to actually invest in robotic fabrication facilities and actually started promoting this field, started to bring students, so future architects, in contact with these technologies and other technologies uh, to come. And I think this is uh, something which will lead us into what I would currently call or actually hope uh, that it becomes some, a kind of a digital building culture, so that the way that we think of buildings, the way that we uh, conceive buildings, the way that we think of making buildings and how we attribute these qualities of buildings to architecture, uh, that this way is actually changing. And as you know, each time the way we built change, architecture also changed. So, but let's start a bit earlier. So I would like to show this slide because uh, of my partner, Fabio Gramazio. We actually uh, started our office, Gramazio Kohler Architects, in the year 2000. And I'm going to lead you a bit back in time so that you understand a bit the motivation uh, for working with these technologies and the explorations that we've gone through. In quite early days, in 2002, we did this little project, M-Table, and that was very important for us. M-Table is basically a table that you can design on your mobile phone. Now, this mobile phone was the first phone that you could actually program. So we took this phone, we wrote the program, today you would say app for it. This was five years before the iPhone existed. And the way that you could design this table was actually just by moving your thumb and pressing with your thumb, you could actually deform a surface up to the point where this surface would cut through the upper side of the table and therefore create a hole. So the feature of this table was uh, it's a table with holes. You could uh, change the dimension of the table, you could choose the color, and you could send this off. Now, interestingly enough, this is the all information that is sent from such a table. So this is what characterizes where you moved your thumb and the information that you put into this digital, uh, let's say, mobile phone to actually create a high-definition surface, which was then calculated on, on the uh, server, and actually run a mill that reproduces, basically, your actions on the mobile phone as a physical artifact. So it was direct relation of what you did with your little thumb to a physical uh, piece. The tables look like this. Of course, you see a certain provocative aspect also in this project. Um, Basically, it has some negative decoration on it, so there is no space for further uh, unnecessary things like flower vases, etc. Uh, but this thing actually works. So this is actually the table which I have at home now since many, many years, and my kids love it. They come up through the holes, they grab their stuff uh, from, 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 from the interior of the table, etc. So it's actually quite a qu playful object. It has these very sharp edges which come from the fabrication process. It's a table which you like to touch also when you sit at it underneath because it has this kind of hidden uh, surface underneath which is quite beautiful. If you have a lounge uh, chair or sofa nearby, you actually see this surface and you know usually the undersides of table are not designed, but this one particularly is. Now I can also share a secret with you. It's, it also does, didn't, wasn't a big commercial success, right? So we produced about uh, six, seven tables of those. These were unique pieces. This one is now at the Vitra Design Museum. Uh, so we're glad about that. So that's being recognized as a part of, uh, of history in, in uh, furniture design. What is particularly interesting for architects, though, 
sorry, this is a, a smaller table. When the table got too low, we flipped the, the milled side to the, to the upper side because you could not see and touch the lower side anymore. What's most important is actually this slide. This slide made us aware that if we as architects design such a, a design system where multiple people can interact with, we're still the designers of this table. So even though we gave away form, which classically is the domain of the architect, of the designer, to a co-designer, namely the user who could by himself choose where to put holes, if, to, if, if the user would put, put holes, or the client put holes or not. Um, still, you can recognize in this, in this uh, slide, it's still a family. You sense that these belong together. You sense that they are actually one design intent with multiple outcomes. And I think this might lead us a bit into the future on how we can think about design, maybe not designing form only, specific form, specific color, but maybe design in certain variations, designing processes which can interact uh, with other people uh, that um, participate in the, in the process of designs uh, becoming reality. So that uh, project was very important for us. And um, I'm just going to show you some projects which we worked upon here. For example, the, the, the largest project that we've ever built. It's one kilometer long, the Christmas illumination at the Bahnhofstrasse in Zurich, the most prestigious shopping street of Zurich. So here we did not only design the physical installation, we also designed the, the change of light, the change of light pattern, the atmospheric change um, on these uh, vertical uh, light elements. Now, the problem was this was a bit too progressive, and uh, some wars between two Swiss banks ended up with one bank saying, we want a new one, we want the traditional Christmas lighting, so this lighting was only up for five years. Um, and there you can also see what can happen with the digital, maybe it is too progressive, maybe it's not communicating enough to the masses, but you know, the masses are changing. The audiences get younger, uh, what does that mean for the way that we design? We are working in classical architecture. Here you see, for example, a house. This house has thinned out wood slats in front of windows, which actually warp all around uh, the volume of the house. So despite the fact that this house looks very closed, like under a wheel from the outside, which is actually due to building laws in Switzerland. Um, from the inside, it's a, it's a very open house. You see the nature. Uh, it's sitting in a nature preserve uh, around it. It's uh, everywhere. It's omnipresent. And this thinning out of the slats is helping you to get a larger view angle and actually accentuates uh, the nature by framing it in a different way. These slats were uh, CNC milled uh, to be like this. Later, there were synergies also with the research that we started. I'm going to show you this uh, in a moment. And uh, we started using materials such as brick, which were robotically placed, which were additively produced. For example, in this facade project, where we reinterpret the bricks to become actually linear elements, something you would usually do out of metal timber. Uh, of other uh, elements, but in this case we could actually do it with glued bricks because they have new properties that were not usually uh, used in brick construction. So the digital kind of um, enabling new findings in the way that we work and interpret material architecturally. Here another example of uh, the Swiss Federal Court in Bellinzona. It's a, also a collaboration project with Berten de Platzes and uh, Durisch Nolli architects who redesigned these patterns of these huge conical spaces. Very impressive. And another small project, an auditorium for the Max Planck Institute for Empirical Aesthetics. And here it's important, this is not only a visual surface. Now this surface is actually made to acoustically perform in a very specific uh, way. It creates uh, the reflections and the diffusions 
that are uh, desired in this space. So here we start to expose the depth of the material by digital control, which I think is something exciting and uh, we look forward to, to work with in the future. Now, the largest project that we've done in the office so far is this EMPA uh, Nest research platform. Now, basically, it's a building almost without facade. So if you look at this building, you say, wait a second, what is this building about? It's, it's maybe what uh, Archigram or so would have dreamed of. It's, it's basically a plug-in plug building. So this building is made to host other buildings on it. You can plug to its infrastructure. You can access it by its core. And it's basically an ever-changing urban, urban configuration on a building. The reason this is done is that you can do research on future building technologies, future behaviors of people uh, in such buildings, uh, test out new materials, new systems. And then once you're done with testing, you can take these modules again away, and you have a lower entry barrier into this research. We thought this is the most exciting program ever. Uh, because to do a building which is not finished is, is very procedural, and, and uh, we like this way of thinking. It was very tough to design this building, actually, because the requirements for the core, so the requirements for what is built, are very, very tough. Think of fire regulations, media access, etc. But I don't want to bore you with the details. Instead, I would like to just show you a film of this uh, um, house. That gives you a sense of how it currently stands, knowing that it will develop uh, now, and I will come to this building later uh, in the lecture. We started with a table that's possible to be co-designed by the one that would like to buy such a table. And we ended with a building that's not finished and that's actually going to work as a 
kind of place to inhabit other buildings. And you see a bit what is of interest to us. And now I would like to make the step into our research. So basically our office is about the fifth to a tenth uh, of the size of our research group, which uh, we have at ETH Zurich. So ETH Zurich provides us with fantastic possibilities to actually conduct uh, or follow our interests. And this is how it started. In 2005, uh, we set up our first lab. This was it, basically an industry robot that you can find everywhere in a car manufacturing plant. Um, but what was the reason? Why did we buy a robot in the first place? Now, I told you, we, th we think that digital, the digital processes, the fact that we can design digital processes and the physical, they can come together in nowadays age. And the thing is, for architecture, there is no machine which builds architecture from digital data. Or do you know any? Maybe in China there is some house printers, so maybe, maybe uh, we'll, we'll have that soon. But in principle, that link, at least in 2005, was totally missing. So we said, how could we bring data into physical reality? We looked for machines, for setups, etc. And we thought, well, the robot is just perfect because the robot, the interesting thing about the robot is it does not know what to do and it has not even a hand. So if you buy it, you just get an arm that can move around in space. But what to do with this machine is up to the one that uses the robot. And this was very interesting conceptually. So it's basically something like a personal computer or a mobile phone where you first need to load the app. Here you need to think, what does this machine physically do? Uh, what can this machine physically do for you? So we bought this machine, and the, the goal was to do additive processes, so to add material. Um, and if you think of architecture, you realize very quickly that most of architecture is added from parts, right? It's, 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 it's how pieces configure to a larger whole to form spaces, which uh, defines most of architecture. There's very few architecture that's literally cut out uh, of material because it would be too much of a waste and uh, not economical enough. So in our research, we bring together the domain of materials, computation, and fabrication. And we then found this category, which we label digital materiality. So the hypothesis is that what used to be material, what used to be materiality to us, now becomes this digital materiality. So the physical processes, so how you make something, how you treat something, is now overlaid with how you digitally inform this treatment of the physical processes. And that means that material now becomes informed. So if you look at this picture, is this just a concrete wall or is it something else? It leads us to a rethinking of construction. So the way that we build now and the way that we are used to think constructively about making a building, that might change. And with that change, the way that we design it might change, the way that we experience a building might change. It enables the design of processes. So that's, for example, M-Table shows this very well. You can design processes instead of form. And, and I think that's very important for me as an architect, the material sensuality, the possibilities of materials are actually enriched and highlighted. So we get over, let's say, a phase of industrialization where material needed to be as cheap as possible, flat, and basically non-informed. Now, the earliest project that we could test this hypothesis was the uh, Gantenbein vineyard facade. Jeremy has alluded to it. This is the building. Maybe you, you know it already. Sorry, yeah, thanks for the putting the sound down. And this is the, the craftsman, may I say. This is a bit provocative, right? Um, here you see that this robot adds glue to each of these bricks. It does it precisely at the point where the bricks then overlap with the brick underneath this very brick and places these bricks. Now, each of these single bricks is rotated up to 17 degrees back and forth. It's a very slight alteration. 
but this very slight alteration in the sunlight gives you this impression of these oversized grapes in the facade. So there is not a lot needed to induce these changes in the visibility uh, of uh, this 400 square meter facade. But what we also like is that the brick, in its essence, the way that this has been built up stone by stone, is not lost in this. So you see the physicality of the brick, the logic on how you work with bricks, and the digital information of it is co-present. It forms something new. And so the closer that you go to this building, you get this sense of almost like a field of, of, of bricks, almost a bit in motion. And so there is another presence of the material which is highlighted. In the interior, you have a more blurry image of this, because here it's about the distance of the bricks and how they close and open with the rotation of the stones. But, the, but by carefully cali calibrating this, we could also achieve uh, a certain uh, differentiation in this pattern, in this building. This, by the way, is also a collaboration with uh, Beate Platz's architects. Now we've seen you can take a robot, and with that robot you can build something additively like a brick wall. Now robots can, can come in various forms. I would like to show this uh, to you. And one form is, is actually simply to take the same robot that I just showed you, but now bring it somewhere. So let's take robots along. For us it was not enough to say, well, robots just stay in the factory as they were always used. So we brought this robot to the Venice Architecture Biennial, and it built these wall elements in front of the Swiss Pavilion in 2008 to basically build this overall internal configuration and zoning of the pavilion. So this 100-meter-long wall was designed in a way that it oscillates. You can see this if I flip back and forth. And this oscillation is not just um, a design that we wanted to make. It's actually kind of a behavior which we gave to the wall so that each of these single wall elements could stand by themselves. So this behavior of this oscillation is such that wherever the wall is only slightly curved, the wall oscillates more. And wherever the small wall is already well curved, the wall just goes up straight. So it behaves to its constructive logic. And by this, all these single elements, they can simply be put. They don't need to be anchored to the ground. They simply stand as a single layer brick element. And how elegant this looks, you can see it here. It's a very textile appearance. So it's constructively thought. We, of course, carefully de designed the details of on how these bricks uh, would, would behave, how they would rotate, etc. But in essence, it's a very slim, a very performant constructive system which expresses itself simply through this materiality. But this wall would not have been designed if you wouldn't have the computer that helped us to actually work on all these configurations and recalculate the details each time we change something. So we did not design the overall wall. We did not say where which brick needs to go. We designed the system that creates this wall. And one advantage of this was also that we could change the layout of this wall up to the moment of production start. It didn't matter. So we could change this line, which we call line of negotiation in the plan, with the different participants of the exhibition up to the moment where everyone was happy. And then we say, OK, now, now we produce it. There was no execution planning in this uh, project. But I think in the future, we're going to see robots like this. This is the first prototype also on the construction side. So they might become peers to, to craftsmen, as we now know them, on the construction side. And this is an early example and test to see if robots can actually measure in the space and in this case, between two end walls, which the robots scanned, autonomously build a brick wall and adapt this brick wall to the given situation. This already works in the lab, so that doesn't mean it's already happening in the building site tomorrow. But in principle, this can be done. 
And Jeremy also told me, well, you know, maybe in the future we build with flying machines. So here you see an early test of actually building up a space frame structure with a flying quadcopter. So this is how it looks when we're happy in research, and this is how it looks when we're not so happy. Because you could also use more than one quadcopter to build up such a structure. And this is what our team tried to do here. So one holding an element, second one bringing the second one. And now they end up in this fight and the structure collapses. But what we then figured out is the best thing to do at the moment is actually to build with ropes. So we have multiple flying agents and we can use what machines can do best and what, uh, or, what, sorry, what flying machines can do best and what the robotic arm could never do. We can basically fly around structures that are existing, like this scaffold, or fly around structures that are just being built. You can start to weave and attach only by motion and some force put on the string. And in this example, this was the end work of uh, two PhD students, one with the robotics group of Raffaello D'Andrea and one with our group. Uh, these robots collaboratively built a bridge between these two scaffolds. And you're going to see that in the end, some courageous researchers walk over it. You see the robots kind of weaving, then tying back to these initial ropes, and slowly building up an entire choreography um, of these strings. Now, what's important here to say is it's not so easy to design this, because basically to design this, you need more information than the geometry of the bridge. What you need to do is actually say, what robot does what in what sequence and what timing? And you actually need to simulate the material behavior in the digital, or at least approximately, in order to be able to design these structures. So this is research-wise very interesting. Can we start to actually simulate material? And can we design structures such as these? And how would the design tools look in the future to be able to do this? This is the, the simulation environment, but I'm going to skip for time issue. We also uh, extrapolated a bit in the future and did a speculative project with the same professorship, basically building up a six-meter-high tower that's an, for an exhibition at the Frac Centre Orléans. And this tower was only built by four quadcopters, so no hand ever touched this structure. It's literally just these quadcopters. Uh, bringing these bricks into space. And we kind of fantasized if this could actually be a 600-meter-high tower for 30,000 inhabitants. This tower in this uh, speculative project was situated, uh, here you see a close-up, the structure. Oh. Well, I went too fast, sorry, quickly. I spare you. So this tower was situated at, at, uh, in Meuse in France at a TGV station which is one hour away from Paris. This TGV station got built only for political reasons, and there is no one living there, or not no one, but very few people. It's a so-called Diagonale du Vide. And then we said, well, if there is a one-hour uh, proximity to Paris, it's very interesting. You live out in the country countryside, and you think of a village as a building, which can be built, but it can also be built back, you know, if you think it's not appropriate uh, to use it anymore. So that was the speculation. One of these, for example, park rings has a length of one kilometer in the building. So it's really a, quite a big, big uh, structure. Here you see how this 1 to 100 model got built. That's the view of one of the flying robots. 
so these four robots shared their task. They were waiting for one another. In the back, you see a charging station. When they got out of batteries, they actually flew back to the charging station, repowered themselves. But that's not been developed by us. This has been developed by the robotics group, of course. But I think it's a very interesting aspect. And, and it's very interesting that this tower got built out without any formwork, without any scaffolding, etc. And you can see this here. You see how it's, it's almost a ghost-like a ghost build-up where you cannot see the usual actors that build such a structure. Good. And only to open a bit the fantasies, I brought one very recent project, which is actually really not about building. Um, this is really just a robot, uh, it's a small installation work which we've done, which actually holds a tiny particle, this white sphere, in the air and moves it through air. So, who knows what the future might bring? I think by manipulating physical matter, bring it together with robots by controlling it, by conceiving it as architects. Um, I think also by thinking of air and all the other, let's say, physical possibilities around us as reality, like for example in this case, this, this sphere was floating because of ultrawave sounds. I think we can think of new worlds or we can understand the current world in different terms and I think that's an exciting uh, possibility. Now you could say, well, wait a second, it gets smaller and smaller, it gets more and more virtual, uh, where is architecture? So I want to flip back to architecture and uh, show you how a factual application in architecture actually looks like. This is our new institute building, it got opened, uh, well, a bit over a year ago actually, and my pointer, oh yeah, okay. So. This is how it looks from the outside. It's a relatively conventional-looking building. And from the inside, this, is a, this building has been designed collaboratively. And our group was taking care of the roof, as you can see, and, uh, and, so, and a new robotic lab, uh, which I'll show you in a minute. This roof is built from 50,000 slats, simple timber slats. Minimally treated wood. Here you see a plan of this roof you see that it looks a bit like a textile, right? It looks like you, this, this was stretched in some places, squeezed in other places. And that's actually very much how we informed uh, this roof structure. Uh, there are, for example, the points where the columns are, there it, it uh, contracts. There are points where we needed uh, air uh, evacuation. Um, I don't know the, the English terms some air evacuation uh, slits, there it, it expands, uh, etc. And so basically, in its form, it embeds all the functionalities that it needs to have. Each of these beams, that's, these are 50 meter, 15 meter long, uh, are individual. Each of the slat is individual in this roof you see the build-up of these cords. And very importantly, it integrates structural aspects, it integrates all these building services aspects, it integrates natural lighting, uh, artificial lighting, and it provides the surface for an easy uh, insulation uh, layer on top. So this roof is not, has not the minimal amount of timber. This roof does more, it does something different. It, it aggregates all the different parts in it and embeds it. How was this roof designed? Now, this, this roof was not drawn. This roof was not modeled in BIM. This roof was programmed. There are some control curves, yes. There is architectural control, yes. But in essence, it's programmed. It's like the installation uh, which I showed you at uh, the Biennale, which we did. 
So every detail is carefully programmed, looked at, how it behaves, how, how do we want it to express itself architecturally, how is the performance evaluated, and so on. You see the raw model in the front, and you see the, the, the fully um, mapped out model uh, with all the inbuilts in the back. It's impossible to, to draw this roof or to draw construction plans for this roof. I'll, I'll illustrate this with this detail. You see here how these different uh, timber slats are actually nailed together. This is how one such knot looks. Each nail goes through, to, uh, to, through two slats, and in overlay, this creates an impossibly complicated situation because you need to make sure that all these pieces that meet in different angles uh, work together and no nail hits another nail in another layer. This is something which a computer can calculate. We wouldn't want to calculate. It doesn't make sense. But as soon as uh, the digital uh, process allows to do this, it's a possibility and it's actually not so hard to do. The roof was produced by an industry partner who decided actually to build up this facility to produce this roof. And with this, the industry partner enabled that we could take what we've done in the lab in a lot of smaller research projects actually out in the practice. So for example, if you now wanted to build a similar roof or hopefully another roof with your own imagination, but using such technologies, these are now already out uh, in the market. I'll show you the video of, of the production. I'll actually go down with the sound because it's a bit of a marketing video. Um, so the robot cuts the slats at different angles and the different length, then does this nailing pattern that you've seen before. changes the tool, it does some final end cuts on every layer. Some trimming. The waste is very minimal because you just take the next part of, of a longer slat. And what you end up with is something like a 3D printed beam at full architectural scale, 15 meter length. I deliberately say 3D printed, knowing that this is not classical 3D printed, but in principle it's very similar, think of it. It's a layer-based building process, additive. The difference is you don't work with powder and glues or other binding mechanisms. You work with real architectural material like wood and connection techniques that are existing like nails. These then get assembled, and here you see, again, a picture of this space. This is how it looks now inhabited with the people in it. I work in here myself, and I must say, it's a really great space. We all like working together here, and it contributes a lot uh, to the building. So I'm, I'm actually very happy to see also the architectural relevance of the research finally uh, also uh, being present. And I invite you all to come by. Uh, take take a look uh, at this building at one point in time. Now, if you go two stories below, you find this laboratory. It's called the Robotic Fabrication Laboratory. It's currently the largest such lab uh, worldwide. The specific feature is that the floor is completely empty. So if you look at the floor, well, actually, here there are some, some sec security posts, but these are actually all taken out right now. So, so the floor is fully accessible to the people working in the lab. And whenever you want or need a robot, it's coming from above, and you can have it help you, you can collaborate with it, you can use it, but you don't need to. So it's quite a paradigm shift from a factory where you have all the floor separated into different uh, cages with robots inside. I mean, if you know uh, automotive factories, at least of the old days, that's the way that they work. Here, we would just like to have a co-presence of these uh, digital fabrication technologies and the human shop floor. So we think of this as a model for a future uh, construction lab, also in industry. This is an example of a structure which we built. 
uh, here now with two collaborating robots. And now I would like to make a step to a current project where we're trying to bring this research of the last three years into a new building. So this is ongoing. It's a bit tricky uh, because it's not a finished uh, product which I can show you, but I think that's also more interesting for you to see a bit uh, where we are at. So in uh, 2011 to 14, I had the chance to initiate together with 12 colleagues the so-called National Center of Competence for Digital Fabrication. And that's actually an interdisciplinary research network. This has now grown to these about 70 people, which you see on the screen. And roughly half of it are now engaged in this project. The project is called DFAB House. And oh, what a wonder, it's built on Nest, which you've seen previously. So here we can actually use this facility and explore how to build with new fabrication technologies. What the real challenge of this building is, and that's why I show you traditional plans, is actually to really make a building where all the, the constructive parts, all the, the building structure that is load-bearing, is actually built with digital fabrication technologies. And that's quite a challenge. It's not with existing, but also with new digital fabrication technologies. So in, this is a small three-story house in the lower floor, you just have uh, an open floor plan around an S-shaped wall. And on top, you have four uh, uh, living units for guest researchers that stay at this uh, campus. So you have a quite a dense program in the upper floors and a quite an open program in the lower floors. So this building needs to go through Swiss building regulations. It needs to go through fire uh, you know, uh, uh, codes. Um, all the safety aspects, etc., and that's the big challenge. That's also why we need to draw all these plans, right? Uh, because we cannot just do an experiment straight from the computer. But that's an interesting process and the challenge which we need to meet. That's the current state. That's a rendering. Uh, I think the reality will will look different. But just to give you a first uh, impression of that, and now it embeds this project embeds six different uh, research projects into one building. Three of them, that's uh, the smart, smart Slab, uh, Smart Dynamic Casting, and Mesh Mode, are actually new, new build, building technologies for concrete. And the in-situ fabricator is a robot that uh, works on the construction site. You've seen that robot before. And in the upper floor, there, um, the upper floors are built by a timber process. So I walk you through the building. The lower floor, we have this S-shaped curved wall built with the so-called mesh mold technique and, and the mobile on-site robot. This is designed so that these undulations provide a certain uh, stiffness to the building so that, that the entire two timber stories above can be um, carried by this single S-shaped wall. This wall, the in this case, this building system is a reinforcement mesh. That reinforcement mesh gets built by the robot and is then filled manually at the current stage um, with concrete. The really great thing is that filling it with concrete uh, doesn't require any formwork if you have the mesh at the right density and if you use the right concrete. So it's a complete formwork-free method of building with concrete. And here you see the construction machine. That's this prototypical in situ fabricator developed by a robotics colleague, the group of Professor Jonas Buchli. It's being packed, brought onto the real construction site. And I think that's actually probably the first time that the robot is on a real construction site, so not just in the backyard uh, of some research facility or of an in industry company. It's con this robot is controlled directly from the CAD environment, so um, the data that drives your design is also the data that later drives your robot. And here is how this wall is then made.
Good. And I think what's also very nice is to show structure that has been produced because that's what you're not going to see anymore once it's filled with concrete. But here I think you can see the resolution that the robot brings into it, this very fine mesh that he built. This robot took a month to build this wall, so don't be afraid. It's not going to take any jobs. It's one robot, four people. It takes, it takes a while this, until these technologies will take some, some traction. But I think it's nice to see what we can do with it architecturally and how we can come up with a constructive process that is actually getting rid of all formwork uh, on construction sites in the future. This is the current state. That's the first manual filling. And now the end finish uh, is going to come. Then we use a second concreting technology that's called smart dynamic casting. That's basically a slip forming process that you can use in prefabrication, where you can form a vertical element in a way that you can change the form during the slipping process. This is how one such element is then uh, basically guarded. And, and after curing, this is how such an element looks. It has a very good surface quality. And we use the system, or we demonstrate the system here as a facade mullion, which has a changing uh, cross section uh, there where the moments are the highest. And that depends on the facade panel width. So that's smart dynamic casting. On top of that sits the so-called smart slab. Smart Slab has not been designed by our group. That's a research of the group of Benjamin Dillenburger. It's a, a young faculty member at ETH doing great work. And in collaboration with our peers from the concrete uh, lab and from the structural engineering, he designed this so-called Smart Slab. This slab is going to be it's going to have a very minimal thickness, going to be very material efficient, and it's actually be uh, concreted on a 3D printed surface. It's going to be very highly articulated. Its structure reacts directly on the morphology of the mesh mold wall that you've seen uh, before, reinterprets that. It's then a and it's then a cantilevering platform for the structure. Uh, that is going to be built on top. I speed up a bit because I see the next session is coming. So you can see in this early mock-up which we built uh, half a year ago that we have three new concreting technologies which come together. And I think this is highly relevant because concrete is the most widely used construction material worldwide. It's, it's responsible for most of the pollutions that we have. So if by some means we can reduce the amount of concrete being used, use it more cleverly, use it more efficient, and have less waste um, with formwork, I think that could contribute a lot uh, to the savings or to the ecological uh, contributions uh, in, in the building industry. Good, on top of this, we have a two-story timber volume, and that's spatially aggregated. So basically, you see a timber structure. This timber structure is made in this robotic fabrication lab. And it's made similar to what you've seen from the sequential roof of our new institute building. But this time, these elements are not built up in a layered process, but directly built up in space to basically form modules 
And you can see that process here. So you see one robot brings this corner piece, a second robot brings another adjoining piece. Now the connection is actually done by hand in this case, so we don't automate everything. But the robots can precisely locate this in space, and by having two robots and alternating those two, we always have these elements at the exact position in space. So regardless on how they might need to be spatially oriented, the robot guarantees and brings in this information. So there is no measuring by anyone in this process. You see that the robot here brings on an, uh, in another capacity of its own. Then we devised this building typology because we needed to find a way that these two robots could build this structure up. So they first built the edges, and then they rotate in these different beams. And like this, you create these spatial modules straight away. This is our first mock-up. There can be very complicated situations, so these are very tricky research questions which we try to solve here, but they don't need to bother you as architects at the current moment. Uh, and then there's going to be a translucent facade uh, on these elements. So, the in so you will actually have this exposed timber structure from the inside, and you're also in the nighttime going to see this structure through the translucent skin from the outside. It's going to be a very lightweight uh, construction method, which has not been done so far. There is now a website only since about two weeks. It's called defabhouse.ch. So if you want to follow up on it and see how it's being constructed, please do so. It should, be open in, it should open in May next year. Now to conclude, can I show one more project? Last one. OK, good. So I've shown you uh, these, the, the different excursions. Uh, I've shown you that we can really build full-scale structures possibly in the future load-bearing structures with robotic technologies. And I've highlighted that there is an aspect of ecology also that is part of these new uh, digital design techniques. And this project, Rockprint, is dear to me because it shows some of these potentials, although it's not yet a building system, and I'm not sure if we're ever going to build buildings from it. It basically takes the most, or one of the most abundant materials uh, on Earth, which is just actually rocks, gravels. Um, and it follows the question, could we actually pile up gravel in such a way that it stays, it can be loaded for building purposes, and once we build back the building, we turn it back into gravel again. That's a simple hypothesis. Not so easy to do, a lot of tests, etc. But we found a way on how to do it, and we could exhibit this at the Chicago Architecture Biennial uh, 2015. This is one method. We have some other methods in the meantime. So basically here, a robot lays a layer of strings, and then we add a layer of rocks in a bo box. Then another layer of string, another layer of rocks, of a layer of string. It's quite a simple process, a bit tedious, okay, I, I agree. But what's really nice is that you can take off then uh, this box on the side, then some, some of this, these rocks fall off. Some stick actually because they're kind of squeezed in this position, and then you can unearth the structure or the information that the robots put in with the string web in this configuration. So like this, we, we built this uh, two-ton uh, heavy structure that's only made from dry gravels and string. So there is nothing, there's no binder, there's no glue, there's no concrete, there's no steel rod in this. It was also not so easy to get it approved to actually show. Um, so that's, that's how it stands. And I think as a kind of stand-in, conceptually thinking about the future of where architecture might go in terms of material presence, in terms of making something out of these materials, in terms of using the digital, and in terms of ecology, I think it's a quite a beautiful project. Now, the most beautiful part of this project is that you can actually build it back. So as promised to you in the beginning, here you see Petrus, the project leader, actually pulling out 
the string of this structure after it was exhibited for three months. So it stood very stably actually. This is how it looks in slow motion, but due to the time being advanced, let's just finish this quickly. So you see basically in the end of this project you have a pile of stones and you have a spool of thread. With this I would like to, to finish and thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.